everybody, it's Lavetta. Hi, it's Miriam. And welcome to Notorious Women Podcast, a comedy podcast. A about comedy podcast. Most Some history's most notorious women. Women. Ah, ha, ha. Ah. I think we kind of did it. <laughs> yes, man. Yes, we made uh, another week. Another week. Yeah, we did. Um, I do want to give a shout out to one of our patrons, Linda, who's one of our beloved patrons. She's always like supporting us and she's so kind. She actually sent me a, a video of um Whoopi Goldberg introducing one of our um our former previous notorious women, Neep Geese. Did I say it right? Oh yes. Neep Geese. Yeah. Neep Geese. Um, so Whoopi Goldberg was presenting her back in 1994 uh, with a Medal of Valor. So it was just like a, it was really sweet. And it was just like, you know, Whoopi gave her a really wonderful, um, you know, um, you know, introduction that she deserves, uh, yeah. she deserves and, you know, and so, so yeah, thank you, Linda. Thank you so much. Um, and awesome. our, one of, one of our other patrons, Stacy, um, she hit me up and so, she, you know, because of Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, um, they've Black been, because of the whole George Floyd, uh, murder, you know, it's, it's really, uh, sparked a lot of protests around the world. And mm-hmm, Stacey's yes. in England and she's in a small town. And I'll, I won't give the two specifics or whatever, but I just wanted to send her love and support. Because, you know, she she has a museum, um, and there, people have been, like, racist, basically. Because, you know, in England, they don't think they're racist because they're polite. But it's like, uh, you guys Which is, like, a there. problem. Be racist? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, but, like, who started the slave trade? Like, let's be, like, let's like, go yeah. back to history. So I just wanted to send Stacey some light and love and to let you know that you're in our thoughts and our prayers um, and not to let the races get you down. And it's 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 interesting how people are responding to – did you see the uh, Congress – I think it was a congresswoman. She was she was upset because, you know, NASCAR and other places yeah. have uh, mm-hmm. banned the, the Confederate flag, which, by the way, let me be, be very clear. The Confederacy, they lost, Mm -hmm. and they were traitors, okay? They were treasonous people, okay? The people people who were, like, the leaders of the Confederacy were killed because they were traitors to America. No, they weren't even killed. That's what I'm saying. They weren't treated like the treasonous bastards that they were. If they didn't die in battle, no, they were tired. So oh, these, Jefferson Davies. No, he's fine. Um, uh, no, he was fine. And in fact, it wasn't until in well after Antebellum and the Reconstruction <laughs> that they started erupt, erecting, erupting, erecting these monuments to these Confederate people who again were treasonous against the Union. Okay. Yeah, like, take away, let's, like, take away the fact that they were slave owners, because, like, I hear you, you're racist, and you're okay with that. So let's just put that to the side, right? 
they were treasonous against your country. Isn't that enough to, like, not build a statue honoring them? Now, I think that being racist is really, like, I would rather you were not racist but treasonous. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I had to choose one, I would choose treason. But I don't even have to choose one because they were both. But in your bones. So she was saying, because people are saying, because now people recognize it, which, again, black people have been saying all of this all along, that the Confederacy is annoying. It's hurtful to black people because it represents mm -hmm. the flag that was trying to keep them in bondage, right? So NASCAR, which I can't believe NASCAR did this. They're like, I know, but I'm going to give them credit. Yeah, you can't bring the Confederate Mm -hmm. flag inside. And so this woman's like, well, I think them banning the flag and these monuments is, like, against white people. And I'm like, you mean racist white people? <laughs> uh, it is. That. It's against racist white people. It is. It's hurting the feelings I... of racist white people. But here's the thing. I'm good with that. That's fine. Let's hurt their feelings a lot. Let's keep hurting their feelings. Yeah. Right? Like, I feel like that's I feel like Nazis crying is a good thing. Like, oh, no, <laughs> we made the Nazis sad. Right? But I'm good with that. Like, I'm good we made the Nazis sad. So, like, I'm good we made the racists sad. Okay? Oh, my okay. God. Speaking of Nazis, I rewatched uh, with my roommate. She had seen it. I, I rewatched The Good Liar. Have you seen that movie yet with Ian McKellen? No. Oh, my God. No. Should I? I haven't seen it. You should. It, it, With it, Ian McKellen and, and Helen Mirren? Um, Helen Mirren, yeah. Yeah, and I saw that. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, my friend was like, oh, was he bad? He was Christian. I'm like, I'm sorry. Even the German people are like, mm, that sort of like we were uh, recruited into the army does not fly. You you still fought yeah. under the Nazi flag. <laughs> the German people are like, hey, 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 this is my people. We made a mistake. Can you try that? Can you try saying that? Let's let's even let's the do German it together. people are like, no, Nazis are bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Nazis bad. Like, why can't white America be like racist? Slave owner? Yeah. Your grand great grandpa was a slave owner? He was an asshole. Let's, just, let's yeah. say it out loud. It's cathartic. Come on, we can hold hands. We can kumbaya. We can call great grandpa racist. We can do this. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that you like, throw grandpa out or you don't love your grandpa. Listen, like I always no. hear my grandmother is homophobic. And I. Dude, my son, I have heard. like some. <laughs> I have some third cousins that are racist. Let me tell you, 12-year-old Miriam heard about that and was like, excuse me. They're still my family. But I was like, no, we can't. We we can't. Yeah, we and my mom love, was like, let's just like, like, it's, and I was like, no, no. Right? It's like, it's still my family. I still love you, but y'all need to stop. Right? Yeah, so and it's and like, also it's an opportunity for you to, you know, challenge them on it. You know, my grandma's an old lady, so she – now, I will say this about my grandmother, and this is one of the reasons I love her. She was all for gay rights, but so okay. – what's, what's the term? Socially, it's still those that, – that, the bigotry, right? That yeah. – how it's unnatural and da-da-da. And I'm mm-hmm. like, nope, uh, nope, nope, you know? So no. I, I shame her about it, and she gets uncomfortable. Yeah. But that's okay that's fine. because I still love her. Um, yeah, and um, you know, you try and reason with them because you know, hopefully, um, you know that 
they they all think about that even in their old age and even when they talk to young people or whatever like 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 little things like she'll say oh my niece is hanging out she's like you should hang out with those gay, gay people and I'm like what does that have to do with it I'm mm-hmm. like if any everybody your niece is gay, hanging out like with her friends uh, right no I'm like right she's like all those they're not going anywhere I'm like uh no I beg to differ it's her straight friends friends that are a bunch of bums because uh, every young gay person <laughs> I know is got a job oh, at they- least. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, they got upkeep. I mean, yeah, and you, you know, you you do the best you can. It doesn't mean you stop loving your family or whatever. But you know, I mean, listen, if if I had a family member that attacked a person for being gay and like, uh, you know, harmed them, I'm turning them in. I I, I mean, that's just gonna be. So you know, but you know, socially, I think it's bigotry. A, yeah. And, yeah. You know, we all I think it's important for us to like educate. Yes. A, like I didn't know, but would have been horrified as a child to find out that like slave owners and and people who were on the wrong side of the Civil War were then deified in a statue. Right. right. I didn't know this. So I think right. first things first. If you want to do something like that, teach it. Teach it. Tell America, and then we then took these traitors and we made statues of them, right? Because yeah. they kind of just did it, and then no one talked about it. But there's still that pervasive, intense, and people are like, well, it's just a statue. No, that that kind of action leads to things like black people dying in 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 so much higher percentage. It's 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 proved well, you, know- you can prove how ridiculous it is. You know what I mean? Like, that is linked to that. And also people, like, you know, I mean, we've talked about it on here before with some of our ladies, like, you know, more recently with Ida B. Wells and, like, you know, she Mm. was documenting something and people are normally like, oh, my word, and they still wouldn't cover it so they could look away, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But, like, now we have cell phones because all this stuff that most white people are seeing, black people know this stuff goes on all the time. Yeah. And y'all just got video of it and – you know, like over the weekend, because I had to turn off my TV from news, but over the weekend, this black man was sleeping in his car in a drive-through. So they call the cops. The cops come, and he's drunk. You know, he's probably drunk because mm-hmm. he's sleeping in his car in a drive-through. But they talked to the man for like 26 minutes, and then they made him take a breathalyzer. And when he failed it, he didn't really want to take a breathalyzer because he figured he just he, and he kept yeah, saying to him. I can go to my, my, I can park my car, you know, I can leave my car here, and then I can go to my sister's. I can just walk to my sister's, right? Um, okay. And so they talked over, like, 26 minutes, and then they were like, you failed it, so um, I'm going to arrest you, right? Now, good policing, because actually, after that happened, this white woman posted, she was like, I remember I fell asleep in my car the next morning, an officer knocked on my door, and he's like, you can't sleep here. On this thing, and she's like, well, I have to go somewhere. And he was like, oh, well, if you drive over to that thing, you can sleep in your car there, but you can't sleep here. It's like it gives you a chance to, like, move, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Or, like, if you're yeah. sleeping on the street yeah. you're in New York, and they're like, you can't sleep here. So it gives an opportunity to leave, yeah. right? That's good policing. But the fact that yeah. they're going to arrest him, he felt like, why are you arresting me? I was just literally sleeping in my car. I wasn't driving. And I'm telling you, I walked you're over su- to my You're literally supposed place. to do that. Like you're supposed no, so to do they, that. Like it's so on the driver's. We're gonna. 
Well, once they said, I'm going to arrest, we're going to arrest you because you failed the breathalyzer, that's when he got upset and he ran, right? And, or I think there was mm-hmm. a struggle and then he ran. He ran away from them. He turned around to like, I don't know, shoot the taser. And, but they shot him in the back twice. And this is the problem. It only seems to escalate when it deals with black people. Why does it only okay. seem to escalate? And that is what we're talking about. And so, um, you shouldn't have to be a saint. You shouldn't have to be all of this not to be shot with interaction, with killed with interactions with the cops. That's all we're saying. Because they'll be like, oh, he was in danger. He turned around. But it's like even the the uh, even the the mayor and their, the people who looked at the tape were like, well, they had guns and he had a taser and he was he was running away from them. So for them to be like. Oh, and they, they were even like, why did they even have to pursue him? They had his car. They, they had his him car, run. and he's not, he wasn't a danger to society. If you really are there to protect and serve, then you make sure society is safe. End of story. He is a part of society. He, if he was running well, around with guns trying to shoot everybody, go ahead and shoot him. But he was just trying not to get arrested. in his mind, he's like, I just told you I could walk to my sister. Why are you arresting me? Yeah. When and that's why it, yeah. So it, and that's all we're talking about the same treatment. But um, I think we should get started because I actually want to lighten the mood uh, for those out there who, because um, it's just I am so, so I'm tired, I'm exhausted emotionally. Um, and thank God I've been working out because all I want to do is sit on the couch, watch <laughs> TV, and eat Hagen Dazs. And well, ain't nothing wrong with an ice cream sandwich I just ate because oh God. Oh, it's God. fine. I know. But you can work out, too. Yeah, yeah. No, the, I work I out. Ice cream sandwich. So, uh, oh, I, I, so, I'm like, I kind of, like, just stand there and work out. That's <laughs> my kids yeah, are having like, a moment. I'll just, like, start squatting. <laughs> it makes me feel better. But it's just a it's a lot because the protest and there's still a pandemic. This germaphobe wants to remind you guys there's still a pandemic. Okay. Yeah, pandemic. But no one thinks it is anymore. Everyone's Cases like we're are good spiking. now. Um, the I mean, protests, I'm glad yeah. for the protests because they seem to be working. We got meaningful legislation, mm-hmm. but then that thing happened on Saturday again with this guy, another black man. And it's like you think cops would be like. I don't know if you watched Insecure. It was on last night, the season finale. I, I'm going to, like, power through the rest. I have, like, three episodes to catch up on. And I okay. waited. Well, there was this moment And now I'm going to power through. The cops show up, and they, like, confront them, and you're like, are they going to go there? But then um, they get into it with – so, anyways, and this one cop, this one white cop is like, nope, not me, not today. <laughs> you have a good <laughs> Yes. Yeah, exactly. Every cop in the world needs to just do that. Be like, you know what? It's fine. I'm going to walk away. Just like, because we are about to create legislation, bitches, that will get you in trouble for doing shit to anybody who is not deserving of it. 
Okay. Yeah, accountable. So maybe, like, be, correct but it. I love how he was like, correct. You know what makes like so funny? your mother <laughs> is watching you. Okay. Well, you know, what, know what makes it so funny is that it's usually how black people are like. When you can tell a white person is trying to bait you, like a racist white person is trying to bait you. Yeah. You're like, like yeah. in, remember in Get Out when the car is following him and he's like, nope, not today. That's yes. exactly how we respond totally. normally. We're like, nope, I'm uh-huh. not today with you. Nope. And so, um, so I like that. I thought that was funny. So we want to, we look forward to a world where white cops are like, no, this is not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. It makes you, like, realize. I like, may not it may be racist, but I don't want this to look like I'm racist. So, nope, not, not, not right. Right. Nope, you have a so wonderful like, meeting, sir. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just going to pull back a little extra. Do that. Everybody do that. So, okay. um, in po- in positive world land, all the po- all the books that all of the white people are telling the other white people to purchase, um, mm-hmm. really they're stealing it from black people who are working extra hard to teach, right? They're like sold mm-hmm. out. People are, and I happen to know people who were very much of the like I've had conversations. I know two people who were very much sort of on the fence about being like for social progress, if that mm-hmm. makes sense you know what I'm saying, who are, like, Mm -hmm. being openly vocal about the fact that white people need to learn more about their history and their part in this and to do better. And so I I think at the very least it's opened more minds to this Mm -hmm. situation. So uh, that is my, like, rainbow spin on that, which is, you know, because it's Pride Month, that that term works, I think. You like it? You like it? Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. And Black Trans Lives Matter too, people. Yes. Um so um so yeah, so I let's get started. I think I'm first this week, so You are I get have it, girl. a fun one. Uh it's fun. It ends kinda sad, but it's fun. Um so oh, I didn't need to do her and I actually found her in research when for my last script I came across her and I, I didn't I was I was doing research on somebody else, but anyway, so my notorious woman this week is Nina Mae McKinney. Okay. Have you ever heard of her? No. Okay. I don't think so. So so Nina Mae McKinney was born Nanny Mamie McKinney, uh, to Hal and Georgia McKinney on June twelfth, nineteen twelve in Lancaster, South Carolina a small town near the uh, North Carolina border. So uh, she was born in 1912. Wow. That's an interesting year to be born. Yeah. Now, when she was 12, her parents moved to New York City as part of the first major migration of African Americans during that time because there's been different um, great migrations to the North because, you know, they have a lot more opportunities there. Um, So her parents moved to New York City. And her father found work uh, with the Postal Service. But she stayed behind because she was, you know, she's still young. And she stayed behind and she lived with a great aunt um, where, uh, who, so her great aunt worked as a housekeeper and a cook because that's basically the only jobs black women could get unless they were educated and they would be teachers. Um, right. And she, so, um Nina, or Nanny at the time, still known as Nanny, she would run errands for her grandmother, and, I mean, her great aunt, and, you know, she ran around like most kids growing up in the South, um, and she learned how to ride a bike, 
she's very outgoing. She's very, very outgoing. Um, and after she learned how to ride a bike, she was a bit of a ham. So after she learned how to ride a bike, she started performing stunts on bikes. Oh, my God. Because, yeah. As if my mother yeah. heart just, like, exploded a little. <laughs> I know. Baby, baby so be careful. She, I know, rough and tumble. She's out there doing her thing. And so she was a natural performer, which, you know, that – so she got into acting in schools and performing, and so she's in plays at her um, at her high school, Lancaster, and um, okay. she also studied dance, and she taught herself how to dance. Like, she was just, she was a ham, like I said. You know, we know what that's like. The kids just like, look at that. I, look at I, me, I, you, know? you and I would have been, like, good friends with her. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she was a very pretty girl on top of it. So um, now when she was 15, she had hopes of becoming an actor, so she moved to New York City with her parents and re- reunited with her parents. Wow. And, again, so she's 15, so she's, what, it's, what, 1927. Um, Good so, now, you know, yes. Yeah, there's enough, there's a lot going on in New York City. Um, she, you know, Mae West is up there. All these people are, yeah. are doing their thing. Um, so she actually debuted a year later in a Broadway uh, uh, show in the chorus line of the hit musical called Blackbirds in 1928. Wow, I've heard of that. So not bad, right? Because we know that doesn't really happen. That's Even amazing. Line, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, she Now, the show starred uh, Bill Bojangles Robinson, who became famous mm-hmm. for the Shirley Temple uh, movies, and Adelaide Hall. Uh, the musical opened mm-hmm. at Liberty Theater on May 9th, 1928, and became one of the longest-running and most successful shows of the genre on Broadway. But she lands in New York and gets in, like, a hit show, like, right away. That's like, amazing. Awesome. That's really, really amazing. I'm also um, very now jealous. With, I know, right? Uh, for our listeners, if you guys don't know, like, that's really mm-hmm. – that's like stuff that they really say in the movies, but that rarely ever happens in real life. But you're just, and then you get to New York, and they're like, "No, that's not really what's going to happen." Except yes. it is what happened to her. So, yeah, it's what happened to her. So, but again, she was a pretty girl, very pretty, and she's outgoing, and she could dance, and she was light skinned, so that helps with the the musical thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, now she, now uh, there's a big pro- uh, producer. Um, director named by the name of King Vidor. And King Vidor actually saw her in the chorus line of Wait, wait his name is King? King Vidor. Yeah, he's a very like oh. famous old school um director. Um, okay, okay. And he was doing an all black version, all black Hollywood studio film called Hallelujah. I've heard and of he offered her a role in Hallelujah. So she moves oh, to New York, wow. gets to the chorus line, and gets plucked from the chorus line for a role in a Hollywood film. So that's amazing. That says okay. all you need to know about how much of a star power she had. Like, she's yeah. a big factor, right? So yeah. beautiful. This does not happen, people. This does not happen. So, um, so after the film's release in 1929, 1929, the Daily News of New York hailed her as, quote, an honest, 
to Goodness Green Star, the first wow. girl to attain this distinction, end quote. What? Yeah. How so have I never heard of her? Exploded. Yeah. So she, it exploded. Like, her fame exploded. It's kind of like Tiffany Haddish and Girls Trip, you know. Yeah. Tiffany Haddish had been around a long time before she got Girls Trip. But, right. So this, she like, really happened overnight. overnight success. Yeah. This is what usually happens to white girls and not even. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is, like, yeah. extraordinary for an actress, period. Um. So immediately, because of her big, she had big, large eyes, people referred to her as the Black Clara Bow. Clara Bow was, like, the biggest white female star at the time. Yeah. Now, um, so, and, of course, black people were thrilled. They were like, finally, we have, like, uh, a leading lady, like a black leading lady, yeah. and not just, like, you know, the heavy set women, like the maids, and that, like, we, she's, like, a bona fide movie star. Like, she's glamorous, she's beautiful, she can dance, she can sing. And so uh, she was so popular with black people that whenever they, the black press would call her Nina May, everyone knew who she was. So she was like a one or two name person, you know, like you say, Serena. She or was Madonna. Angelina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. She, she was so, like, it, her debut was so astronomical that MGM gave her a five-year contract. They did not do that. Wow. This is how much. It no. Was like, oh, my God. She's so beautiful. Like, yeah. And you're like, I mean, I, I think Marilyn Monroe got a one-year contract in her first contract. That's what like, they usually put everybody under, like a six months. Yeah. Six months. Six months because they were just like, yes, oh, where am I going to happen? But uh, this is a black woman, five-year contract, MGM. So the problem wow. is 1929, 1930. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do with a glamorous black woman. They just don't. And they don't have the cojones to create opportunities for her. Like I was going to say, you and I would know what did, to do. Yeah. Even if they did an all-black cast film twice a year, they could at least have a role for her. But, no, that sounds like right. That sounds like trying to help her to succeed. No, they just wanted to lock her down because, you see, she's so beautiful. And, you know, and, Lovetta, and not only would they be having her quality. succeed, but they would also have to elevate other black people I mean, that sounds impossible. Yep. And I would say what no, go ahead, Hollywood likes to take a lot of credit, and to some degree, fair enough, that they've been diverse before diversity was a thing. But I also think they were detrimental. I don't know that they should be taking quite as much credit because well, they had the power to change yeah. minds, they have the power. They could have done it. Yep. Nobody would have stopped them, and people would have gone to the movies. Yep. And I, I'm i like, I think we need to have that conversation. We need to stop giving even them so if, much uh, credit for their diversity. I mean, we yeah. know because we live here and we know that's not true, but even if they had, if only black, like, if they had made ongoing black films, Right, Hollywood, because mm-hmm. that's, that's important because it's a studio system, so you still need the budget, right, and the backing to get right. the advertising out there. They, black people would have gone to the movies like three, four, five times, like what people do now about superhero movies. They would have made their money back. Yes. They would have made, that's what I'm like, saying. It's not, yeah. it's not that they didn't have an audience. It's not that they yeah. wouldn't have made their money. It's that they were racist. <laughs> 
And I feel well, like yeah, we don't say, say that. We should say well, that. I mean, I say it. Black people say it. Like, they really I know, but like, I'm, to... I'm like white PSA that. Let white friends tell yeah, your friends that are, like, let's, come on, guys. Well, they wanted to, <laughs> to, they wanted to continue the, the image of black women not being glamorous and beautiful. And then they, they were very, yeah, they were very specific you know, as to what was glamorous. They went from brunette to suddenly you had to be too. blonde. Yeah. yeah. Oh, was it? it? Right, right. And it's part of the Hayes Code. Yeah, part of the Hayes Code was to keep black people in subservient roles. So, you Hey, know, see, I studied the history of, the, like, theater and film. I didn't know that. Like, that's what I'm saying they, about it. They wouldn't say that's I what I should have known that. They wouldn't say that's what it was. They they said that the Hayes Code was implemented to keep, you know, um, uh, family values and morality in the films, right? And to keep, you yeah. know, that's what they would say. So to elevate a beautiful black woman would be against white family values at that time. That's that's the unspoken mm. rule because they but like I think that that film and in, in a Hollywood and again. Because at the same time, they had what they call race films, which were always, always black, you know, all black films or all Asian films that black people and Asian people went to see. But these films, their budgets were so, like, a portion of what the Hollywood budgets were that the quality of the films were just not the same, right? So, yep. but that's by design. So, so anyway, mm-hmm. so, but the NGM was like, in 1929, they gave her this five-year contract. But we know what's going to happen. But despite this, the challenges of finding her role, despite this, she appeared in more than two dozen films and shorts over two decades. Um, And even though half of them were uncredited parts, often as, of course, a maid, a role that she Mm. had publicly vowed never to play, or an unnamed entertainer in a nightclub scene. So that's another way that they would, like, an attractive black woman, they would kind of pass her off as, like, exotic. And they would put her in like a mm-hmm. nightclub scene that they could cut out mm-hmm. when they showed the film in the South. So now one of her Fuckers. Go on. most one of her most acclaimed performances. This is now at the same time, Anna Mae Wong is going through her own version of this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yes. One of the um one of her most acclaimed performances was as an undercover agent posing as a cabaret singer in a film called Gang Smashers from nineteen thirty eight. The best of her three race movies. So again, this is what I'm saying, the uh, features made for black audiences. Um, and you watch Gang Smashers and it looks the way, it's the kind of film that has the role that she should be playing in Hollywood films. Um, other movies included The Devil's Daughter in 1939, a drama set in Jamaica, uh, Danger Street from 1947, and then a mystery starring Jane Withers and Pie Pie, uh, Pie Pie Blackbird in 1932 a musical short with uh, U.B. Blake, with U.B. Blake and his band. But despite turning in solid performances and having, like I said, the it factor, she struggled to get a foothold into Hollywood in a major way. So very frustrated. Um, and also other people knew this This was probably going to be her fate. Lamenting what he feared would be her fate, Richard Watts of the New York Herald Tribune wrote when she first got the MGM contract, wrote that, quote, her exile from the cinema is the result entirely of narrow and intolerant racial matters, end quote. I guess yeah. it was after yeah. they realized that they weren't using her. They weren't using her because they were too, 
I don't know. People say it's about money, like people will change courses. It's not always about money. It's about white supremacy. Now I'm gonna just gonna say I, that I was, yeah, we I, know I they think that made needs money. to be said. Exactly. Yeah, like they could have made money. They could have made money and and they knew they could have made money. Yeah. They didn't want yeah. people to boycott them. They were fearful of that. I mean they were yeah. if, if they weren't totally just racist, they were probably fearful of a boycott, which is but totally they absurd. boycotted if they made two all black films a year. Or four. They would not. Would, they just, those they, people they would have boycotted film. those films. Fine. Yeah, but that's, but that's anyway. fine. I'm just saying that the black audiences would have gone like four or five times because they would have been so happy mm-hmm. to have like a high quality film starring black people. Really? They, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, they, they could have done four or five films. They used to shoot a film a week back then. I know. <laughs> I know. It's so true. Like, like, it's not like these big theater, these big companies, you know, they, they they put out maybe twelve major blockbusters a year. Yeah, that, that's a lot. It's probably more like it was eight a or factory nine. back then. Yeah, they were doing eight so, or nine a day. Like it was like yeah, this would have been On nothing. Lots. They could have done it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so just I just feel like we need to stop excusing 30s. it. Yeah, well, yeah. Now to find broader and more sustainable success in the thirties, uh, still in her twenties, she moved to Europe and began a successful musical and uh, theatrical career. Leaving the U.S. Girl, was probably the best move. That. Yeah, it was probably yeah. the best move she could have made, and she did it uh, early. A three, she did a three-month European publicity tour for Hallelujah starting in 1930, uh, which expanded to include club dates in Paris, London, Berlin, Monte Carlo, and beyond. So she's, like, living the life as she should. Because, amazing. again, she, when you see her, you're like, oh, yeah, like, um, she was actually, she she eventually became known as the Black Garbo, actually. So glamorous okay. and, like, just, and she had these yeah. big, big eyes, which they wanted actresses to have back then, like, really, really beautiful. So um, she she returned to Paris in 1932, uh, possibly inspired, they think, by Josephine Baker, um, you know, because Josephine yeah. Baker had become, like, a big sensation in Paris. Um, but while in England, she starred opposite Paul Robeson, one of my favorites, Ugh, in a film yeah. called Sanders, uh, Sanders of the River in 1935, playing an African chief's wife. Uh, with a, she even had those very distinctive Hollywood, thin Hollywood eyebrows that we think of in the 30s, like with those. Mm, yeah. She looks so, she, 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 she just looks like a mocha colored, like Hollywood starlet, really. Like, um, she also had the first distinction of being the first African-American entertainer on British television as part of the BBC's experimental broadcast in the 1930s. Um, soon after she topped the bill, uh, she also was touring British clubs. Reviews mentioned some frequent numbers that she would do, like, it don't mean a thing, if it ain't got that swing, of course, stormy mm. weather, lazy bones, and all kinds of things. So they loved her over there. Um, so she would go back and forth with Europe. She would like, uh, try her hand. She would come back stateside and then get frustrated and then go back to Europe. And like, cause everybody wants to make it in their home, right? Everybody wants to make it in their hometown. And yeah, unlike Josephine Baker, she wanted to act in movies. So that's why you keep coming back to Hollywood. So, mm. um, but she, she worked pretty regularly for two decades 
Um, you can imagine how exhausting that was. Um, but her last recorded public performance was a less successful one. She played a prostitute and Sadie Thompson in a short-lived staging of Rain at the Apollo Theater in 1951. So imagine hoping, like, you're going to get a chance and being like, I have all the goods, you know, like, yeah. and not being able, you know. So she would go back and forth. And then in 1949, she actually had a small part. So her roles were getting smaller and smaller in Hollywood films. Each mm-hmm. time she would try, she was also getting older, too. Um, but she's not even that old. No, but, you know, by Hollywood standards, because then you're fighting ageism, too, especially when you are a leading lady True. and ingenue. You know, um, now, um, so she appeared in uh, Ilya Kazan's Pinky from 1949, um, where it's a drama starring Jean Crane as a fair-skinned black woman passing for white. Uh, McKinney, she had one scene as a fiercely jealous girlfriend was powerful. Um, one of her lines is Crane, the, the lead is, quote, nothing but a lowdown colored girl trying to steal my man she tells police officers though a powerful performance because it's one of it was a scene stealer she basically was like right. that person that Good. shows up and is like yeah she should have been nominated right for that one scene she yeah do it all the time nowadays totally um, though it was a powerful performance it didn't revive her hollywood career like she had wished and that was in 1949 uh because you know racism because it sucks yeah. she finally decided to leave performing in the early 1950s um, but then in 1954, she made a brief attempt again as a comeback as Hugh Magazine, which was a, a sister magazine to Ebony, uh, reported mm-hmm. that she was, quote, preparing a return to show business in a new act, unquote. Unfortunately, that didn't okay. happen. And so she kind of fell out of uh, public view. And, you know, I can only imagine because she, again, she went to uh, at 15. She goes to New York. At 16, she's a chorus girl. Like, and then she's off to Hollywood, and she's not really prepared to do anything else in life. And um, yeah. one of these, uh, this book that I had um, I had read, I listened to the uh, audio version of it, uh, in my research for the last script I did, it talks about black Hollywood. And one guy was saying that, so the uh, narrator was, the author said that, you know, Nina, Nina Mae McKinney was a bona fide star. She had all of this. She was born about 30 years too late. But she's basically yes. the precursor to uh, Lena Horne, Dorothy mm-hmm. Dandridge. And because when Lena came in the 40s, she also struggled. She was in two big movies, and then she had to go and do cabaret work. And then in the 50s, uh, Lena made the way for um, Dorothy Dandridge and then Eartha Kitt, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. 50s is really when black people really got uh, a lot more opportunities in films. and They and stopped roles. getting cut out of films as aggressively. Yeah. And as we know, in the 50s also is the advent of Sidney Poitier. But if it were not for women like Nina Mae McKinney mm-hmm. and Patty McDaniel doing what they were doing yep. in the 30s, these other actors wouldn't have had a, a blueprint, if it, as it were. But, you know, sure. so I, I just imagine how depressing that was because we know what happened with, with Anime Wong as, as well. Like, you get so frustrated. You're like, am I crazy? Am I not a star? They say, mm-hmm, oh, they want yeah. someone with elocution. They want someone who's elegant. They want someone who's beautiful and that, that, that. And you have, I have all these things. I've gone to Europe. I have better credit. And you guys still won't give me a shot. It's enough to make yeah. you crazy. And so in this, this, uh, this 
book um, that I was listening to, he said that uh, she kind of, people kind of lost sight of her because she kind of left black Hollywood here and she went back east. And somebody said that they, they were at some club in New York and this woman, this black woman was waiting on them. Um, and he, cause usually, usually people don't look at like the help quote unquote. And yeah. he got a glimpse of her and he was like, why does she look so familiar? And he thinks it was Nina Mae McKinney working, but she was much heavier. Oh, and she looked okay. a lot older oh. than she really was. I don't know how I... true that is, but I mean, I can only imagine the toll it takes on you. And then you have to make a living. Yeah. And if you can't make a living at clubs, you know. You have to work. Um, yeah. And clubs don't pay as well as Hollywood movies. That's why everybody wants to be in the movies because they pay a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so people kind of lost sight of her in the mid-50s for a decade. And then on May 3rd, 1967, she died at Metropolitan <gasps> Hospital in Manhattan. The cause was a heart attack, according to a short obituary in the New Amsterdam News. Her funeral was at the little church around the corner, whose ties to the theater would go back to the 19th century. Um, reports differ. Yeah, so that's – so people lost track of her for like a decade. She was oh my 50, God. What, five years – yeah, way too young. Um now, uh, reports differ on whether she was ever legally married to this man named Jimmy Monroe, a jazz musician, who later became Billie mm-hmm. Holiday's husband. Um, but they toured nationally, of course, with his band in the mid-30s. Um, and in 1994, Daily News Tribute, shortly after uh, Jimmy Monroe died, mentioned her as his ex-wife. So they're not really sure if they really got married back then. Um, or just by common law. Yeah said that she might have been married to Robert Montgomery, nicknamed Charleston, and um, uh, anyway. And then a man named Frank McKay, a civil engineer um, in 1949 and others, but they were all unconfirmed, you know, because she was a showbiz woman. Um, she it's left no known survivors. Yeah. She left no known survivors. Uh, and in 1978, she was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame. Um, in 1953, now this is sweet, and it's also kind of heartbreaking because we know how she died, but in 1953, the director, King Zidor, in his memoirs, wrote about Anna Mae McKinney. He said this, quote, it took no great effort to bring it, her talent, out. She just had it. Whatever you wanted, whatever you visualized, she could do it, end quote. It's, and that's it's beautiful. Anna Mae McKinney. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm so grateful for her, but I it's heartbreaking. Yeah, because she didn't get her flower yeah. while she was here. Like she, and it's true when you see her, you're like, how have I never heard of this woman? Like, I mean, I think black film aficionados know of her, but when you look at her, you're like, this woman is clearly a star. And but Hollywood said no. Hollywood said no. Even though they gave her a five year contract, and she probably thought, yeah. Oh, my God, you know, she wasn't the first black performer to get a contract, a long-term contract, but she was the first female one to get one to play that was a leading lady material. Mm-hmm. Because they would yeah. give them to, like, Step and Fetch It or, like, you know, uh, later on Hattie. But, you know, and I love Hattie McDaniel, but she was a very specific – Hattie was very specific type that they only wanted to see in Hollywood films. And she made a great career of it. 
Um, and I'm glad that we can finally appreciate Hattie for what she did. But there was no place mm-hmm, for yeah. someone like Nina McKay, Nina May McKinney, which black people knew of her. And they were like, she's a star. She's a star. I mean, we even have them today. Like, there's black people. Like, I, we've known about Taraji forever. It's only since Empire. Why yeah. people know who Taraji is? But Taraji's been great. And she's <laughs> even got nominated for an Oscar before. Yes. You know? Like, that's so. I mean, I love, I love her. But, like, that that's the that's the issue that that I take up with Hollywood is that you know most people but you know but like I think that they need to own the the role they played in the detriment of mending fences with race issues in society. I don't know if what I just said was a complete sentence or not, but. <laughs> You know what I'm trying to say? They, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. They had the power very easily to make money while helping racial relations, for lack of a better term. Um, that's like the kind way of saying, right? The racial relations yeah, no, as opposed just, to like white people to stop being such racist bastards. Like, um, they had that power and not only did they not use it, but they hurt people uh, while they were not – it wasn't just – it wasn't an innocuous choice to just not do anything. It was actually hurtful. They made the but world a little bit purpose, worse. Because they can't elevate yeah. a beautiful black woman in cinema. Are you kidding me? Like, but I feel like since – I guess you let Oscars and stuff, they'll take credit. The first black Oscar went to – we did that. I was like, shut up, okay? Like, yeah. something's happened. Great. Um, yeah. But we need to look at that history and and not look at, you know, like, it's even the media, like the right-wing media is like, oh, the Hollywood elite, the Hollywood yeah, yeah, liberal. Yeah. And I'm like, actually, we're a bunch of bastards. Like, that's not yeah. we. I'm not them. But I'm... Um, I teach Pilates. Um, but you know, like th- their history is not good. Um, let's be honest about it. Nope. Um, yeah. Thank you for well, bringing this to us. Yeah. So I mean, Kenny, of course, too. I'll put videos of it on our Patreon page. But if you yeah, guys, you, if you just go to YouTube, like you'll Google her, you'll be like, oh my God, this woman's so beautiful. Like she looks like she belongs in like, you know, a movie with Katherine Hepburn or like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, wow. Yeah. Go down that rabbit hole. Uh, that yeah. YouTube rabbit hole. Um, okay. So let me explain what I did. Ready? Okay. Okay. I'm ready. So my husband is writing a book and it's a sci-fi okay. book. And, oh. you know, I'm not into sci-fi specifically. I like like I like Babylon Five back in the day, um, but like you know I did not watch Game of Thrones, like I just didn't. Um, but so but you know he's right, and I'm his wife, and I you know I creative and have a brain, right? So he's like, can you read? Tell me if it's clear. Da da da. And I read it. It was really interesting, very different like way of writing. I was and I thought and I was like, eh, I wonder if there's like a a female like sci-fi because you know growing up sci-fi tended towards the boys not the girls 
it wasn't, you know, the toys were right. pushed for a boy toys, but plenty of girls like it. But it's just, you know, they keep genderifying things. And so I said, what females were interested? So I found, I found some that I thought were interesting. And because they're not, there's not, you know, they're young, there's not like a lot of information on either of these women. But I wanted to talk about, um, these women who are, who they're, they're both actually women of color and they, um, one actually like pulled off some money, which was awesome. Um, and they're awesome and you'll see, I'll just explain. Um, so okay. the first one I want to talk about, her name, I don't know her name because her name is N.K. Jemison. So the letters N, okay. the letters K, and then Jemison. So she okay. was born September 19th, 1972, right around our birthday. Uh, she was born in Iowa City, Iowa. September, you know, it's the best month, really. So she grew up, so she was born in Iowa City, Iowa, but she grew up in New York City and Mobile, Alabama. So, you know, talk about knowing all of America, really. <laughs> like, the South, the East, and, like, Middle America. She lived in Massachusetts for 10 years also before moving to New York City. She went to Tulane from 1990 to 1994, and she got a BS in psychology. And she went on to study counseling, and she earned her master's of education from the University of Maryland. So she graduated, uh, she was a graduate of the 2002 Viable Paradise Writing Workshop. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. Sounds like a writing workshop. Um, and she published short stories and novels. She was a member of the Boston area writing group called the Brawlers and is also a member of Altered Fluid, which is a speculative fiction critique group. So this is why I wanted to talk about her. <laughs> that up. During her delivery of the guest of honor speech, so she was a guest of honor, at the 2013 continuum in Australia, she pointed out, that 10% of the science fiction and fantasy writers of America membership voted for alt-right writer uh, Theodore Beale. He also goes by Vox Day. So shout out if you see a, a book written by a guy named either Theodore Beale or Vox Day, don't buy it. Uh, but 10% of that membership voted for him for the presidential position of the SFWA. So in her speech getting honored, she was like, 10% of you wanted this alt-right motherfucker to be our president. She went on to call him, quote, a self-described misogynist, racist, anti-Semite, and a few other flavors of asshole, end quote. I mean, you got to love her. And she noted that silence about these issues was the same as enabling them. Uh, Beal responded, you ready for his response? It's so good. It's bad. It's bad. Hashtag is bad. Uh, By calling her an, quote, educated but ignorant savage, end quote. So that happened. Hmm. A link to his comments was tweeted on the SFWA author's Twitter feed, and he was subsequently expelled from the organization. But I don't think he was shamed enough, 
So I thought I would take this opportunity to shame him. Why not? We're here. <laughs> Why not? Oh, my um, God. That's funny. She got in a plane, went all the way to Australia, and was like, this fucker, right over here. Everyone see him? Wave hi. Yeah, you a dick. I love it. Badass. Yep. Uh, she was yep. co-guest of honor at the 2014 Wiscon Science Fiction Convention in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, she was GQ described her as having a day job as a counseling psychologist as well. Um, she was the author guest of honor at Aresia in 2015 in Boston, Massachusetts. She's like a, 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 you know, what is it? What do they have in San Diego? A convention, like a the Comic Con. Comic Con, yeah, it's like a Comic Con. Yeah, um, she started writing in 2016, uh, Otherworldly, which is a bi-monthly column for the New York Times. Uh, in 2016, she mounted a Patreon campaign. Uh, we know about that, which raised sufficient funding to allow her to quit her job as a counseling psychologist and focus full time on her writing. The following year, Bustle called Jemison the sci-fi writer every woman needs to be reading. Um, mm. So I was like, okay, let's talk about her. So uh, a couple of things she's written. So in 20, 2009 and 2010, her short story, Non-Zero Probabilities, was a finalist for the Nebula and Hugo Best Short Story Awards. Her debut novel, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, the first volume in her Inheritance Trilogy, was nominated for the 2010 Nebula Award and shortlisted for the James Tiptree Jr. Award. In 2011, she was nominated for the Hugo Award, Award, World Fantasy Award, and Locust Award, winning the 2011 Locust Award for Best First Novel. It also won okay. the Sense of Gender Awards in 2011. Uh, it was followed by two further novels in the same trilogy, because that was the first of a trilogy, called The Broken Kingdoms and The Kingdoms of God. The Kingdom of God. Uh, in 2016, her novel, The Fifth Season, won the Hugo Award for Best Novel, making her the first African-American writer to win a Hugo Award in that category. Uh, it sequels The wow. Obelisk Gate and The Stone Sky won the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 2017 and 2018, respectively. Wait, uh, she, she lives and she works the first in... Black, I'm sorry, she was the first black woman to win that said, what year? Uh, it, ready? 2016! Okay. I mean, I I'm happy for, the for in the but back. really? Like, maybe the people yeah. in the back needed to hear it, because they might not. Sometimes their ears are bad, so I can yell. That's fine. Wow. <laughs> right? Wow. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, like, crazy. crazy. So, yeah. She's, yes. And she's, I love, what I do love is that she was a badass bitch calling this bastard out, and then she went on to win awards. That she, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, that she kept going and she was, like, that, because that's hard. That's hard to be in a room full of people where 10% of them, like, hate you. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can feel it, that, too, yeah. Yeah. Ugh, but go her. I love her. Maybe I'll even read a sci-fi book. I don't know. <laughs> I like sci-fi books. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm I not, know. You should read it. my head, but. Girl, I haven't read a book in, I don't know when. I'm so dumb. <laughs> I thought in the pandemic so I would dumb. just read everything. No. No. I'm scared screen, no. mostly. I'm just, I'm just dumb. Because reading does help you not be dumb. It does. 
I've noticed that. It does. You know what I've been reading? Total side note. Um, the, oh, what is it? The, oh, God, I can't remember. Oh, wait, yeah. I have it next to me. Uh, the number one ladies detective agency series. Do you oh, know of yeah. it? I have okay. to make sure they get My, it good, but I love the HBO uh, show. So the book, the first book is great. The rest of the books, they're like, they're like candy that's like too sweet. You should have grown out of it, but you kind of just keep mm-hmm. eating it because mm-hmm. it's just so repetitive because when you make like 400 books of a series, they get tired, you know, and so they just repeat to fill pages. Um, yeah. The, the, the HBO series was so good and I was so mad they only did the first season. I know. It was so good. I really, really liked it. Anika Noni Rose's performance should have been nominated. Oh she my so God, good. right? She's oh my so God. Good. She's, and having read that first book, I, like, I'm reading now more just because, like, it really is, like, not hard to read at all. It doesn't, um, but she bring like, you could, she brings this depth to that character. And then yeah, I didn't even know it was she, to be honest. I didn't <laughs> even realize that was her for a while. I was watching, I was like, why is this really, I was like, is that Anika Noni Rose? <laughs> I think I've, I feel like I've been stalking Anika Noni Rose because, like, I can't remember what it is, but I've seen her on Broadway. And I don't remember even why, but I remember seeing her in Dreamgirls and being like, oh, Anika Noni Rose. I know her, and then, like, yeah, I mean, like, I she just keeps popping up, and I feel, like, awkward, like, keep stalking her, um, but I love her, um, so, yeah, that's a good book to, like, open, it's not hard, <laughs> I know, every other book feels too hard, um, okay, so let me go to the next woman, Melinda Lowe was born in China, and she moved to the United States at the age of three. She graduated, I don't know, again, I don't know much about these people, but uh, she graduated from Wellesley College, and she earned a master's degree in regional studies from Harvard. So not not dumb, but, you know, no? on, the, yeah. on the end of the other, right. So then she enrolled in Stanford because, you know, can't have too many cool colleges, uh, with the intention of obtaining a Ph.D. in cultural and social anthropology, but she only left with a second master's degree. Because she's lazy, I think. That's what, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that what you that, got? That, that sounds yeah, about right like, to me, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's so nice. You and I just talked about how we can't read a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So she was, I know, right? But it's pandemic speaking. It's just a pandemic. Um, I know. In, you know, the world. The fucking world. Um, uh, there's all these chocolate ice cream. Uh, so she was made a member of the faculty of the Lambda Literary Foundation's 2013 Writer Retreat for Emerging LGBT Voices, along with Samuel R. Delaney, Sarah Schulman, and David Groff. She began writing for the Culture Blog after Ellen in 2003. I think that's an interesting name for a blog. Um, yeah. And at one point served as the managing editor. Her first novel, Ash, was published by Little Brown Books for Young Readers in 2009. It was a finalist for the William C. Morris Award, the Andre Norton Award for YA Fantasy and Science Fiction, the My mm, Mythopoeic, Mythopoeic, mm, I really mm. should read more, don't know how to say this word, 
uh, Fantasy Award, and the Lambda Literary Award. Her second book, Huntress, was published by Little Brown in 2011. It's the, uh, it is set in the same fantasy world as Ash, which mixes Asian and European influences. And her third book, Adaption, was published in 2012. Yeah. Reviewers at Kirkus Reviews uh, and elsewhere have compared it favorably to the television program The X-Files. The X-Files was also the subject of her graduate research at Stanford. Uh, a sequel okay. to Adaption, titled Inheritance, was published in 2013. A standalone thriller novel, A Line in the Dark, was published in 2017 and was named Best Book of the Year by Chris Vulture and Chicago Public Library. So in 2011, Melinda co-founded Diversity in YA, which is a website and book tour to promote and celebrate diverse representations in young adult literature with fellow young adult author Cindy Pond. Diversity in YA highlights books with characters of color, LGBTQ characters, and disabled characters and collects data on the number of books with diverse characters and authors that are published annually. Starting in 2012, she has periodically published analysis of the diversity and publishes weekly and New York Times best-selling young adult novels. She's calling them out. Yes. In yep. 2013, that's analysis do. Right? Seriously. Yep, 15% of New York Times best-selling young adult novels featured main characters of color, 12% featured LGBT main characters, and 3% had main characters with disabilities. Should I rephrase? 85% featured main characters that were white. Like, mm-hmm. I think sometimes people are like, oh, 15% are, are, are people of color. 85%, 7% are straight. And 97% have no physical issues, disabilities of any sort. Wow. That's a lot. So she's That's a lot. getting it done. Um, you know I love to find someone in which I can make a rant. That made me really happy. <laughs> and that that's like, that's what we know about Melinda Lowe. Um, wow. Awesome. Awesome people. Wow. Yeah. And these people, people have been doing the work the whole time. Like, you know, they have that, people out there on the front lines and, you know, mm-hmm. doing the work. That, and that's, that's yeah. the work. That's the real. Yeah. That's not, it's all the work, but it, but it's these people have like, they've known this. This isn't new information. This isn't new information right. to really. It shouldn't be new information to anybody, but it is new information to a fair amount of people. Um, yeah. But um, but it shouldn't be. Well, but thank now you so you much. Know. And so, say, you can know, you say their names again, right? both of them? Okay. Yeah. Now you know. Melinda Lowe. Melinda with M-A-L-I-N-D-A. And N.K. Jemison. That is amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Are like, they cool? Yeah, there's there's... Our women are always so badass and so great. They're so great and so inspiring. Oh, they're so great. Totally. Um, well, guys, that wraps up another episode of Notorious Women Podcast. Guys, I hope you're doing well, uh, you know, staying inspired and, 
you know, not getting too overwhelmed. And, and we hope that we can, you know, give you a little respite from all of that um, and also educate you. You know, we have our rant. <laughs> um, but uh, you like that evil laugh. <laughs> um, but we also uh, are here to entertain you and, you know, but, you know, take care of yourself. Self-care is very important now because, yeah. again, there is a pandemic going on, mm. pandemic mm-hmm. of corona as well mm. as racism. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, protect yourself. Um, if you need to unplug, do that. If you need to eat ice cream, do that. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to tell. Nobody's going to tell. Mm-mm. Because, no. again, we're kind of, it's not like yeah. It's not like we're going to be out at the club anytime soon. So if you got a little extra weight on you, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's and listen, fine. listen, I will tell you this. If they do open the club and you look down, you're like, oh, my, be like, no, 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 Corona. I'm no fool. <laughs> right? And then go get some more ice cream. It's fine. Like, we literally give you permission. You know what I suggest? A little caramel sauce on top. Little oh. caramel sauce. You know, I have ice cream. I have ice cream sandwiches downstairs. I don't like the the outer shell because they're too hard. So I think I'm gonna take them pick out. Them pick out like two or three and just scoop out I've the done ice this. cream. I've done I'm that. Gonna do that. I'm gonna do that okay. right now. Guys, you go do that right it. now. I've earned <laughs> it. All right, guys. Uh, that wraps it up. You can follow us on Notorious Women Pod on. Um, Twitter and Facebook. Our Instagram is Notorious Women Podcast. Say what's up. Give us a shout out. Um, and we guys, mm-hmm. we love you and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>